We're in Romans 11, and we're going to be looking at uh, a large section of Romans 11, verses 11 to 32. If you're taking notes, the title is simple, Salvation for Jews and Gentiles. I could have said salvation for all, but salvation for Jews and Gentiles. Why don't I pray as we're all turning there? God, we come before you and uh, we're thankful for all the things uh, that you're doing uh, among us, that you're doing through us and in our community, and we're just looking forward to um, this Christmas season that's coming up and pray, God, that uh, not only would we have uh, a fresh uh, appreciation for the coming of your Son into this world, but that you would also use us to share that good news with others. Uh, The world is weary, and people are weary and tired, and and many are wondering about the uh, certainty or uncertainty of life, and I pray that we would uh, be conduits of your blessing, Lord, in sharing your gospel to them this Christmas season. I pray this morning you would equip us from your word. I pray that you would teach us from your word and and, and challenge us uh, in the ways that we need to be challenged. And we pray that all of these things would take place to your glory and our good, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in one sense, this week is Paul's final thoughts on this relationship we've been talking about over the last several weeks in chapters 9, 10, and 11, which is the relationship between Jews and Gentile believers. And there are a lot of factors that Paul has been discussing in regard to this relationship, and some of those factors are going to be brought up this morning, and I'll do a little recap for us uh, here as we begin. One of those factors is Paul's explanation of God's plan of salvation with Israel in redemptive history. So what has been his plan in the past? Throughout the Old Testament, beginning with God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, All the way through to God's saving of this family from starvation by leading them into Egypt to then 400 years later delivering them from slavery in, or from Egypt through the hand of Moses to their wilderness wanderings, their settling in the land of Canaan to the times of the judges and the kings and the prophets to their eventual exile and then return from exile. All of this history, the question is, what has God been doing with His chosen people Israel. And Paul, in part, will answer that this morning. In part, we also know that this plan, though, in the past was to be a special people for God who knew and worshiped the true and living God in contrast to all of the other nations who worshiped false gods. They were to display His character and His power and glory to the world, and they were to be a blessing to the surrounding nations. Now, we know by looking at their history that they failed repeatedly in that calling. And they suffered the consequences of that disobedience as a result. However, God did not, and this is what Paul has been talking about, God did not allow His plan for His people to crumble, but instead preserved for Himself a remnant from among the Jews, the Israelites, and Israel within Israel, as Paul says, a remnant, who were not only children of Abraham by blood, but were children of Abraham by faith, which is a true child of 
Abraham. Therefore, they were considered God's true people. So that's one thing that Paul addresses is this plan in the past and in light of the present, which then brings us to that other factor. What is Israel's present situation? Paul is writing 2,000 years ago, roughly, to the churches in Rome. One of the more passionate and personal notes in these chapters has been Paul's grief in knowing not just that his fellow countrymen fell a thousand years ago, but that in that moment, the time when he was writing, his fellow countrymen were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah and, to make matters worse, are uniquely responsible for his crucifixion. Even Paul could add of himself that he persecuted the church before he became a disciple of Jesus. And so he's wrestling not just with their past, but with their present unbelief and hostility toward the gospel. And as Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Rome, one of his concerns is is not just coming to a correct understanding of God's dealings with Israel in the past, but what is he doing now? What is he doing in them presently? Why is it that so many of them have rejected Jesus? And at the same time, how is it that some of them are still coming to faith in Jesus? And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. A third factor is Paul's desperate, or that he is desperate to answer, uh, not just about the past and the present, but what is the future plan? What is God's ultimate plan for ethnic Israel? Is there a plan? And how does that plan relate to their present and their past situation? And finally, there is something that we've been talking about a little bit, but there's this ethical and sociological factor that Paul wants to address. Again, I've mentioned this several times, but it's going to be addressed here with unambiguous clarity in the text we're going to read. The factor is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And, and those Jews and those Gentiles in those churches at that time, there was division. You think we have race issues today. There were race issues back then, and this was one of the biggest of them all. And so he wants to talk about that. One of Paul's pastoral endeavors in this letter is to reconcile Jewish and Gentile believers, believers, Now, he understands that if they're unbelievers, there is no reconciliation because there is no belief, there is no faith, there is no common ground. So he wants to reconcile Jewish and Gentile believers. And it's important to understand that he doesn't ground their unity in their history or in their common experiences or interests. It's not in language or culture or politics. It's not in any of these things that he's saying, this is what we need to be unified in. This is what we need to ground our unity in. Instead, what he says is we have unity through and only through, really, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, their equal need for saving grace and the equal access to that saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is what he wants to talk about. For Paul, one of the greatest witnesses of God's saving power in the gospel is the unity of his people in the church, particularly here with Jewish and Gentile believers. Paul wants to remind the Jews of his day through their acceptance of Gentile believers into the church, that this is what God has always planned and purposed to do through them. 
to bring the nations into salvation through their corporate witness. This was not plan B that the Gentiles were coming to faith. This was always the plan. Salvation was never just a Jewish thing. It was a God thing which He was working out through the Jews and out into the world. In other words, though the Jews may have thought this, the Jews were not the point. And the Gentiles were not the point of salvation, at least not fully. So none of them were the point, and yet at the same time, all of them were the point, reconciling these two people together. So with that said, this is sort of what we're talking about this morning, and if I could boil it down to a simple idea, it would be this, of what we're talking about. Though God's people fail, His plan cannot and will not fail. His purposes in salvation will be accomplished. Even when his people fail, his purposes for them even do not change. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. These verses, they divide up into three sections, and we'll look at each one individually. And they sort of fall under this heading, again, of salvation for Jews and Gentiles alike. So we'll look at the first section, which I'm calling a ministry of jealousy. A ministry of jealousy. Who wants to have a ministry of jealousy? I think we all should, and we'll see why. We're going to look at 11, verse 11 through 16. So I ask, did they stumble, that is the Jews, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Last week, we ended by looking at this rhetorical question that Paul asks and answers in verse 11, which he says, in other words, uh, their fall, their meaning the Jews, their fall, it was not final, and it was not without purpose, is what he's describing. And Paul answers that unambiguously. He says, by no means. There, there was a reason for what is going on. Their fall was not final. It was not ultimate. It was not complete. God is not done with His people, Israel. This is, again, what we talked about last week. Though the situation seemed very bleak, very dark, and very hopeless, at least for God's people, Israel, God is not finished with them. He has not fully and finally rejected them because of their unbelief. Paul himself said, I'm proof of this. I'm proof that he has not rejected all of Israel as well as a faithful remnant that still, not just in the past, but even in their present day, there were Jews who were coming to faith and believing in Jesus. So he's saying positively with affirmation, by no means, he has not fully and finally rejected them. There are still Jews coming to saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. He says they stumbled and they fell, not for no reason at all. He says they stumbled and fell in order that 
salvation might come to the Gentiles. Now, this is a really strange explanation. How can one person's failure, or let alone an entire nation, a race of people, how can their failure result in the good of another, especially a diverse group of people like the, all the nations, the Gentiles in the world? And the, the answer lies in what I mentioned last week, which is the Joseph principle, that somehow in the omnipotent, omniscient plan and purposes of God, He providentially works not just in the times of faithfulness. Oftentimes we think God can only work when things are going really, really well. But if you've been following or walking with Jesus for long enough, you know that's not typically how He works. He works in times when it seems like it's impossible for His his plans to succeed. Not just in times, again, of people's faithfulness does God work, but also in their times of faithlessness and disobedience. This is the Joseph principle. You remember in the story of Joseph in Genesis, after his brothers, they sell him into slavery. Joseph, he likely wondered, why would God allow this to happen? I mean, he gave me these visions, these dreams that I was going to ascend into this high and lofty position and my family would bow down before me. How can I go from that promise to now I'm in a cave? Now I'm in a prison cell. Now I'm a slave in Egypt. How does, how does that work? How is God going to redeem this situation in order to bring to pass what he revealed to him as a 17-year-old boy? I mean, this is a question we all ask, right, when we go through hardship and difficulty. But how would his promises come to pass if he was in that current situation? This was a predicament. And of course, the answer came years later during another hardship, during a famine, when God raised Joseph up to be the second most powerful man in the world. And when his brothers came to buy food from this guy they heard about in Egypt that they had no idea was actually their brother, that he was still alive, after a time of testing, Joseph knew who they were, and he says to them, When he realized that they were broken over what they had done to their brother Joseph, he says to them, I have come to realize this, that as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the Joseph principle. Joseph, he didn't apply the evil done to him and blame God for it. He did not blame God. He said, you guys alone are guilty of what you did to me. But that, he says, somehow in the mystery and the providence of God, he was able to use that evil done to him by his brothers to bring about his sovereign and good purposes and plans. This is the Joseph principle. It is a mystery for sure that God not being the cause of evil that he experienced or that we experience, at the same time was and is sovereign over all the evil and providentially uses it to accomplish his divine purposes in our lives, particularly in salvation. And it's this principle that we need to understand if we're going to comprehend the gospel itself. After all, how could God allow, let's just look at the life and ministry of Jesus, how could God allow his chosen one his beloved son, his Messiah, to suffer and die a criminal's death, a cursed death. How could God let that happen? Certainly, that's what the disciples were thinking. How could God let this happen? And the answer 
lies in this principle. It gives us that through the evil, sinful, and wicked acts of people against Jesus, God brought about His plan of salvation to the world. God used the evil schemes of the Jewish establishment of that day to nail His Son to the cross. Isn't that amazing? He used the wicked intentions and betrayal of this man named Judas Iscariot, a man that Jesus called, loved, and allowed to enter into fellowship with him to bring about these events. God was sovereign over it all. I I said it earlier, but the point of this text is this, that though God's people fail, his plan cannot and will not fail. His purposes in salvation will be accomplished. And even when his people do fail, his purposes for them do not fail. Isn't that astonishing just the way God works? When things happen to us that we don't plan, we have all these plans for ourselves and we're like, okay, we're going to do this. And then something unexpectedly happens, loss of a job, a pandemic hits, I don't know. I mean, we could just list off all of the things that inconveniently happen in our lives and inevitably our plans change. They have to because we're not omnipotent. We don't have this power that God has, but God's plans never change. In fact, the times, again, that when things seem the least possible, the darkest of times, that's when God's glory and His power shines the brightest. But I titled this section, A Ministry of Jealousy, because this section isn't just about how God's plans never fail, but about how God uses our failure to lead his people back to faith. Isn't that incredible? Paul writes that through their trespass, that is the Jews' trespass, through their stumbling, through their failure, through their unbelief, salvation came to the Gentiles, which is amazing because remember God's plan and promise to Abraham was that through him the nations would be blessed. And yet they disobeyed, but God's plan still was not thwarted. It was not deviated. It was always to bring the nation's blessing through them. And it came through the death of Jesus and through the message of the gospel. That's how this blessing flowed to the Gentiles. But he also writes that salvation came to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous What a weird thing to say. What does that mean? This is an idea and expression that we can, I think, Christians stumble over, especially because the word jealousy has such negative connotations to it. But one author put it this way. I think this is clarifying. At at base, jealousy is the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. And whether jealousy or envy is good or evil, it depends on the nature of the something desired and on whether anyone has any right to its possession. So with that said, there can be a place for jealousy that is good. For example, we all have people in our lives that we look up to, people that we aspire to be like, people that we admire, people that we look at their lives and we see qualities and characteristics that they possess and we think, man, I want that too. What they have, that's what I want. And if that is a good thing that you're seeing in them, then, this, then jealousy can be a good desire because you're seeing something good in someone else and saying, I lack that and I want to possess that same thing that they have. Now, coveting would be different. Coveting would be they have something 
and I don't have it, and if I can't have it, then I don't want them to have it either. That's a different thing. Jealousy is, I like what they have, and and I want that too. So you see, what Paul was hoping to do through his ministry to the Gentiles and through the celebration of, of Gentile conversion and inclusion into the family of God is to make Israel jealous. In other words, he wanted them to see, guys, this is what you're missing out on. You are missing out on all of the blessings and promises that God made to you in the past because of your unbelief, because of your rebellion, because of your presumption that because you're Jews, you're good. You're missing out on the true glory. You're missing out on true salvation, which is quite ironic because, again, this is what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to live out their faith to such a degree that the Gentiles were jealous And the Gentiles would look at them and say, hey, you guys have something that I don't have, and and I want that, and I want in. But because of their unbelief, they must up, and now God's saying, it's the other way around. Now the Gentiles are the ones who are there to make you jealous. Again, the Jews, they considered their election, the fact that God chose them, it wasn't something that humbled them. Instead, this was a source of pride. They were exclusive. They were saying, we have a monopoly on God's glory, but it was never supposed to be that way. It was always supposed to be inclusive, bringing people in. God wanted the Jews to display His grace in order that the nations may see and desire that for themselves and then believe. But just because they failed didn't mean God's plan failed for them or for the Gentiles. It didn't mean that salvation stopped. Instead, what God did is He flipped the script. Now the Gentiles are the ones stirring the Jews to jealousy in order that some of them may be saved. And I think this is personal for us. And I've told this story before uh, about my own conversion and me becoming a Christian uh, that when I was 20 years old, I was, I was dating a girl who was a Christian, uh, but, but her parents were real Christians. And I remember seeing their life and thinking, man, when, I, when I'm married for 25 years, I, I hope my marriage looks like that. And right now, when just thinking about marriage at a 20-year-old 20, 20 uh, age, there's no way living the life I'm living that I would have that. What do they have that I don't have? I want it. And they weren't rich. You know, they didn't have all of this stuff that you often uh, attribute happiness and joy and success to. They, they had a great life, but the only thing I could pin it down to was that they knew Jesus, and that was an unsettling truth that I could not get over, and I think eventually God used that in order to bring me to faith in Him, but this is what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. We're supposed to be not just proclaiming the gospel, but living the gospel out so that people see in us the thing that they lack How do you have that joy in the midst of the trials that you're going through? How do you have the security in the midst of so much chaos that's going on in our world? How come you're not freaking out like everybody else is? How come you have such love toward people who are so difficult to love? How do you have this ability to do that? And at the end of the day, they're going to see Christ in you. That's the only possible explanation. That is the ministry you have. It's a ministry of jealousy. You want people to see your life and say, I I want you to want what I have. And that's not riches, and that's not health always. It's not any of those things. It's Christ and Christ alone. 
We want people to want that. We want people to see Christ in us and to desire that for themselves. So when you live out your faith, people will take notice and some will desire to have that for them and will turn and be saved. This is what Paul desired in his ministry for the Jews. And we should want that same for the people that we know. Now, this gospel strategy leads Paul to an ethical analogy in the following section, which I'm calling a spiritual lesson in trees, a spiritual lesson in trees, Uh, verses 17 to 24. Let's read it together. Sort of building off of what he had just said in verse 16, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you... Although a wild olive shoot, he's talking to Gentiles here, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, not in law, not in religion, not in morality, not in any of these things. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even then, or even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? In these verses, Paul is switching the focus of his audience from Jews, which he has primarily been addressing in the prior sections, and he now is speaking to the Gentiles in these churches. And he makes that clear in verse 13. I'm talking to you Gentiles. But as he does, he uses a familiar Old Testament image to make his point. The image, of course, is the olive tree, and the olive tree is a picture, an image of historic Israel. In Psalm 52, the psalmist writes, and he writes very positively of this image, and he says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. This is a familiar image that Paul is is using here to describe his people Israel. But later on, so that's in the psalm, but later on, in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, he comes in and he uses this image and he speaks negatively. He says, the Lord once called you a green olive tree. Beautiful, with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done. Again, what Paul is doing is taking that familiar theme, this theme of the olive tree, and applying it here to Gentile inclusion, and he draws ethical imperatives from that image and from this idea of them being grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And his point is this, some of the branches, they weren't bearing fruit. 
They weren't bearing fruit due to their unbelief. And so what did God do? He went and he trimmed off the branches. He broke them off. This is what Jeremiah was talking about in the text I just read. It's also similar to what Jesus talked about in John 15, right, with the, vine, the true vine and the branches. But he didn't just break off the unfruitful majority of Israel and then just leave the plant bare. No, what he did next is he grafted in fruit-bearing branches through their faith and belief. And this is who Paul is saying the Gentiles are. But what is his point in saying all this? Well, he tells his Gentile readers right there in verse 18, don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. Don't think that you're special and that's why God brought you in. Instead, it's because you're leaning in his, into his kindness for you. Don't think that there's something uniquely special about you because that's where the Jews made the mistake and they were cut off. He didn't choose them because of anything they did. He chose them even though they were wicked and rebellious, even though they were far off. He chose them. He loved them even when they were unlovable. And secondly, they shouldn't be arrogant because really they weren't the first ones to discover this truth. You know, I think it's common for people, and this is very relevant for us today, it's common for people to forget that the blessings we enjoy are built and were built off the hard work of others who have gone before us. I mean, we celebrate Thanksgiving, why? Because of our history here. But some refer to this as generational snobbery. That's a good, good term for us to remember. Each generation tends to think this. They reject the past. Well, those people, they didn't know what they were doing back then. We're like this enlightened group of people, and we've got it all figured out, right? They, they didn't deal with the kind of stuff that we're dealing with, and we have the solution. They reject the past, thinking that they were morons, and they fear the future, what future generations will do because they think they've reached the climax of what like human life is or something like that. Every generation has like their generation of if we could only just go back to like the 50s or something, then everything would be awesome. It's like, well, in your mind, uh, but again, that's, that's generational snobbery. It's thinking that a particular generation has a monopoly on greatness, but that's not true. We're all built off of the past and probably in the future, someone will come in and do a better job than us. And Paul uses this to humble his Gentile brothers and sisters. Essentially, he's saying this, listen, don't treat your Jewish brother or sister in Christ with contempt or prejudice. Accept them in. After all, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here, Gentile believer, without them because it was to them historically that the promises came, the covenants were made and established, and which the Word of God came. Not just the written word, but the, the word, Jesus came. He came through the Jews. You Gentiles, he's like, listen, you're just branches. You should just be thankful to be here on an already existing olive tree, on an already existing group of people and plan and purposes of God throughout history. I mean, think about how incredible this illustration is. The Jews, they need the branches because they were a plant that was not bearing fruit. They weren't fulfilling God's plan and purposes for them. So they need the Gentiles. Through their unbelief, they had failed. So God grafted in the Gentiles, which was, again, his plan all along. But the Gentiles, they needed the Jews and their history and their legacy because without it, there is no trunk. There is no tree. There is no gospel. There is no revelation. There is no Jesus. There is no faith. There is no salvation. In other words, hey, Jews, you need the Gentiles 
in your churches, and, and you Gentiles, you need the Jews in your churches, which translates easily, I think, into the ethical imperatives and how they treat one another in those local churches that Paul was writing to. And I think for us, I think the obvious application should be we need each other in our diversity to experience unity in that diversity. If you're an older, established believer, you need the younger believer. And I'm not talking just in age, though oftentimes it is age. I'm talking the newer believer. You need that person in your life and in your churches to disciple and mentor. And if you are younger, you need the older You need the established believer to guide you in this new way of following Jesus. In in the past several decades, I'm sure you've noticed this as well, but there has been a fad for youth movement churches. And and in one sense, I'm speaking oddly because I'm only 37 years old, Um, but young churches make me nervous. They make me nervous when we see these churches that are predominantly like the median age is like 21 and like there's like a thousand of them meeting there. We look at that and go, wow, look at all these young people. I look at it and go, oh, no. Where's the established believers who are going to lead these people? Where's the established people? Churches that are predominantly filled with young people lack that spiritual fortitude to weather the cultural wars that are every day waging war against us. At the same time, older churches make me nervous because they're not making the shifts to where reaching the next generation of believers. And, and they're doing it to their own demise in large part. And it, oftentimes it's due to that fear that's associated with generational snobbery. What are these younger people gonna do with this thing that I built? You know what I'm saying? Someone asked me just yesterday, uh, you know, having been here for four years, um, and I, I mean, some of you may know or not know, but this church is almost 130 years old this church here. Um, do I feel like now that I've been here for four years that, uh, that this is like my church? And my gut reaction was yes and no. Um, yeah, like this is my church. Like I'm so committed. I'm more committed than I've ever been, right? But at the same time, this is not, this is not my church. Uh, I, I didn't build this place and neither did you. I didn't make this place what it is today, and neither did you, neither neither did any of us. This church has been around, there's been not just a generation, and not just two generations, but multiple generations of people who have gone before us that have made this place what it is today. And we get to benefit from that. And I'm, I'm hoping, I am praying, and I am planning that 50 years from now, it's gonna be better than it is today. I'm not thinking that the best days are in the past or even right now. I'm thinking that the best days are in the future. That's, that's my hope, and I, hope, I know that's many of your hope as well. But I think it's that sort of idea. We need to remember that several generations of faithful giants have gone before us. And there were highs and lows. There were points where things was really awesome and things were really low, and some of you have seen that who have been at this church for a long time. And yet still we could say over their history they paved the way through their love, through their devotion to the gospel and to one another, that we get to experience the blessings of that today. Our job now then, in light of that, in the time that we have, is to be faithful to the Lord in our generation. That's, that's what we're called to do, to be faithful to the Lord in our generation and to teach the next generation about Christ 
and to do so in honor of past generations and respect of past generations who have gone before us, and again, to do all of this in unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are stewards. Stewards, that's it. None of this is ours. It's not ours. We're sojourners, we're strangers, we're pilgrims in this earth. None of the things that we possess are really ours. We're just stewards, and it all belongs to God. He invites us, though, in to participate and manage His stuff in the story that He is writing through human history, and He desires for us to bear fruit to His name, of which, Paul, he offers a warning, doesn't he? He essentially tells the Gentiles, don't be arrogant. Uh, God cut off the Jews for their unbelief. If you, as a people group, begin to be presumptuous as they were, you also will be cut off for your unbelief. And understand, he's not speaking to individuals here. I think this is a really important distinction. He's not speaking to individuals. He's speaking to corporate, plural, you, the Gentiles. And his challenge to them is remain in God's kindness. Remain in God's kindness. In other words, don't be arrogant. Don't turn to law or religion or morality or thinking these are the things and the reasons why God loves you and why your generation is the best or why you're special. No, it's because of God's kindness and His kindness alone. Rest in God's grace and acceptance of you. And as you do that, you will be better prepared to show grace and to give acceptance to those who are different from you who think different from you but are united in the gospel of Jesus. This is Paul's spiritual lesson in trees. And in the last section we'll look at, Paul brings kind of a lot of these thoughts to a conclusion. Uh, This section I'm calling a mystery of hardness and mercy. We'll read 25 to 32. Paul writes, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Mercy. Verse 32, this is important. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Just a few things I'll point out and then we'll close. First, notice that Paul wants his readers to be aware by the gospel regarding these essential church matters. He doesn't want to leave them to their opinions. He's like, I don't want you guys to be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to lean on your own opinions or your own postulations. He wants them to understand how the gospel affects relationships and at the same time acknowledge, listen, there's a mystery to all of this that we need to acknowledge. And so he summarizes what he's already stated. A partial hardening has come upon Israel both in their past and in the present time that Paul was writing in order that... And until the Gentiles fully believe. 
Now, what Paul has in mind here is what you may call, or some may call, the eschatological moment. That time in the future, even the future from our day, when God will bring to fulfillment His eternal plans in salvation history leading up to the second coming of Christ. And how and when and in what way all of that will take place is again still a mystery, but knowing this, it will happen. It will happen. God has a plan for what He's doing now. He has a plan with His people, ethnic Israel. He has a plan with bringing salvation to all of the nations. It is happening, and one day it will be done, and Jesus will return, and He will come and redeem His people fully and finally. But before then, and even presently, there is a hardening upon the hearts of ethnic Israel, not including that remnant, until all of God's chosen people are saved. As I mentioned last week, God is not done. Since Paul makes that clear, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, he writes. He's not saying God's done with His people. His callings on them are not irrevocable. No plan, no evil plan, no demonic or human evil plan can thwart God's plan for His people. But we must ask, what is the purpose of all of this? What is the purpose? Why is there a hardening on Israel now? Why was there a hardening on the Gentiles in the past? Aside from their own personal unbelief and aside from the fact that God used it, what is the purpose in it all? What is He doing? And Paul answers that question for us in verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience, Jew and Gentile, that He may have mercy on all. His election, His work in grafting Gentiles in, His present hardening of rebellious and disobedient Israel, all of it, all of it was done so that God could show mercy to all. And so we would not be presumptuous in thinking, oh, God, save me because of who I am or what I have done or what I have contributed to society. He's like, no, everybody should recognize that they need mercy, that they need God's grace. No matter who you are, where you come from, whether your life is in the gutter or whether you look at your life and say, you know what, it's pretty good. 2.5 kids, picket fence house. You know, two cars in the garage, a job that pays me well, decent retirement going on. You know, I'm healthy right now. You know, everything's really good. You know, when you see the plan of salvation, when you see that I am actually a needy person still, I still, when you look at a Christian and say, I've got all of this stuff and they have all of the same stuff and yet they have something I don't have. They have Christ. And in that moment, it's like the, the, the pearl of great price, right? I have, this, I have all this other treasure, but now I see this thing that I don't have, and I'm willing to get rid of it all, sell it all, in order that I may possess this one thing that is the greatest treasure of them all, which is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see this next week, but I'll give you a teaser. Salvation is not about you, and it's not about me, and it's not about the Jews, Salvation history is about the God who saves. It's all about God. It's all about Him. It's a demonstration of who He is, His love, His power, His justice, His wrath, as well as His compassion and mercy 
to the undeserving. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, because it all points to and flows from the glory of God alone. We're going to talk about that next week. But I think there's enough for us to walk away with this morning, so why don't we pray and we'll have a time of communion. Father, we're thankful for uh, your word. And God, I pray for us that we would not be arrogant about our salvation, that we would not be arrogant about our opportunities, but that we would recognize your great mercy and kindness that you have shown to us. And not just you, but your people in the past who have paved the way for us to experience the blessings that we experience today. We don't have a monopoly on doing Christianity right. Oftentimes, we make so many mistakes, and we look in church history and see the mistakes they made, but man, they did some incredible things, or did incredible things as well. And so God, help us to not fall into that same trap that is so easy to fall into. Help us instead to rest in the mercy and the kindness of Jesus. Help us to have a ministry of jealousy where people look at our lives and they think, man, I want, I want what they have. I don't have it. And I pray that we, would have, that we would be that salt, that we would be that light in a dark place in order that some may be saved. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.